Why don't we uh, Why don't we pray before we get started? Heavenly Father, we come to you now uh, asking for your help. We ask that you would that you would come now by your Spirit and speak through your Word. That you would speak through me, just a vessel. Father, I pray that you would get me out of the way. That your Word and your purposes in your Word would shine through. Father, I pray that, that we would worship you in spirit and truth. I also pray that you would inspire within us a hope. Not just a general hope, but a very specific hope that rests upon your promises. Father, I ask that you would do this for our good and for your everlasting glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Lucas West, and as most of you know, and today I'm going to begin uh, a short sermon series on the generational dominion or the multi-generational Christian faith. But before we dive right into uh, our scripture readings for today, uh, I'd like to set the stage just a bit. Uh, I'd like to start by talking a bit about the post-millennial hope and why that's important in light of having a multi-generational view. So simply put, and I, when I say simply put, I mean very simply put, uh, post-millennialism is a doctrine that instills hope for the future. Now there's a lot more that goes along with post-millennialism, but we're going to work from that definition for now because we don't have five hours. Um, other eschatological views, uh, premillennialism, amillennialism, uh, no doubt say that they also have a, a vision of hope for the future. Uh, but the future hope for those uh, perspectives on the end times uh, do not concern itself with the present age. It, it looks to a future age that will be ushered in with Christ's return. Neither view holds out hope for the triumph of Christ, His gospel, and His people in this present age. Each sees a decline in Christianity while there's an increase in evil and false religion as the, the future history of the world comes to an end and Christ comes back just to rescue everyone at the last second. You see, postmillennialism not only looks forward in hope to this final victory of God's people at the end of history, it also anticipates the victory of Christ and His people prior to the second coming. This hope that, that we have exercises a profound influence on, on those who hold it, and it impacts the way that we live and we do ministry. It also causes us who adhere to it to be future-oriented, to, to live today in view of the future triumph of the kingdom of God in this world, not just the next. You see, we, we believe that the obedience to Christ is the only appointed means to advance this kingdom. And that means every sphere of life, not just personal obedience, but 
uh, obedience within the family, obedience within the church, and even, dare I say, obedience within the state and politics. Because we know that our ultimate victory is certain, we can be patient in times of, of seemingly insurmountable turmoil, like we kind of find ourselves in today as we look at the, the news and, and Donald Trump is our president. I still have to catch myself saying that. Whereas, as, as opposed to that, other eschatological views like premillennialism or amillennialism, they deny Christ's current reign over the nations and their rulers. They tend to uh, politics and practices that are essentially pluralistic. They are man-centered. They're centered around man's reason and man's uh, power and his rights instead of centered around God and what he has to say to us from his word. You see, having this view of how things are essentially going to shake out provides us hope. Not just hope in a heavenly place, but also hope for this present age and generations to come. This hope that we have is is energizing. And without this hope, we inevitably reconcile ourselves either to the status quo and live in grim submission to that status quo, or we plunge ourselves into despair and essentially are overcome by that despair. I've... Now, I'm not saying that this is always the case, but this has become the prevailing uh, position of many churches. If a Christian's eschatological hope is only in a resurrection life beyond this world, they will, or they will probably, I don't want to speak in absolutes, (laughs) they will probably abandon the Demanion Mandate and despair of any triumph of the gospel or righteousness in this world. With no hope of a cultural transformation uh, where the salvation of Christ reaches far as the curse is found, as we just sang, Christians become essentially deserters of the army of Christ. Those who, whose hope is exclusively in a heavenly rest, they devote all their energies to prepare their own souls and others for that eternity. Now, please hear me. I know I'm, I'm, I'm sounding like I'm attacking this heavenly place, and that's not the case at all. I think that we should spend some time meditating on the fact that, that if we, it, when we do die, we will be present with the Lord. We will be with Him, and it will be unbelievably pleasant. <laughs> But if that's our exclusive hope, then it is possible that we will render ourselves completely ineffective this side of heaven. This kind of hope that I'm talking about makes for a different kind of Christian. Yes, we hope for the resurrection and the final victory at the end of history, but we also are filled with hope for this world. And it's because we envision a world where the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. We are energized to labor not only for the salvation of souls, but also for the transformation of all nations and all of life. That's why our motto here at Cross and Crown is, All of Christ for all of life. 
You see, the reason I found it so important to start here before diving into our message is because we need to know and understand this hope that, that we're passing along to our next generation. It's, it is the gospel, but it's, it's coupled with that gospel, this hope of what God is going to do in this present age and also in the next. This is why we are so enamored with a multi-generational view here at Cross and Crown. First, because the Bible commands it, obviously, but also because we trust that victory is ours through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, with that in mind, that incredibly long introduction, let's go to our first passage of Scripture, which is in Psalm 145, verses 1 to 4. Now, I'm going to read these first four verses, and we're going to hop around a lot. This is going to be a topical message as opposed to an expositional one. Uh, but I'm going, to, I'm going to read these first verses, and uh, we're going to focus in on number four. Psalm 145, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of the Lord. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his generation, and his greatness, I should say, is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Now, I would put forward to you that we as a culture uh, are somewhat obsessed with studying generations. I'm not going to say that we're faithful from generations. Uh, from generation to generation, but we are obsessed with studying it. Uh, I, I can remember back in Bible college just a few years ago, we studied uh, generations and how they were different and unique, and each had its own name. You know, they had the baby boomers and, and busters and Generation X and millennials and now Generation Z, and I have no idea where I fit in with all of that, but uh, they're all different. They're all unique, and because they're all unique, They all had their own needs. And in order to reach and affect each age group, I was told that I I would need to develop different tools. Uh, We had to to come up with different approaches because you couldn't possibly reach a a grandmother and a grandson with the same message. No, 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 no. We had to be inventive. And honestly, it's this thought, it's the fruit of this thinking, that's, and it's really become the norm in the American church that uh, uh, each individual group, uh, I'm sorry, uh, we had to incentivize everything. Um, and it's, uh, we had to do that, sorry, so that the church uh, would not be divided. That was, the, that was the thought process, but it's actually backfired. Uh, we have become divided. In an, in an attempt to identify each generation, how to minister to them, we've essentially divided everyone. The senior folks are over there sort of looking down on the younger folks condescendingly, and uh, the younger folks are scared to talk to the senior folks, and the single folks don't talk to the married folks because they're married and they're out of their uh, stage of life, and it's just all separated. Mm-hmm. Um, but my question is, is that the way God intended it to be for the church? What does the Bible say about those generations being present and how we should interact? How do we obey Psalm 145, verse 4? 
one of those generations should be declaring mighty acts of God to the next. Now, we we cannot do that unless our generations are actually interacting with one another. We have to be doing life together. That means involving our children. That's why I'm so thankful for this, this church and churches like it to just have little people here, you know, listening to the Word of God. It's, it's wonderful. And younger folks, like even these younger folks, they should be discipling one another. We should teach them how to do that. I, I have a, just a quick story. Um, we had the Wilsons over at our house, and it was, it was a good time. And we also had John Reasoner. Not trying to leave you out, brother. Um, so we, all, we were all hanging out at the table, uh, waiting on pizza. We're about to start eating. Uh, and then Jack comes running in and uh, starts talking to Jordan. I didn't really pay any attention. That happens a lot. Um, but then uh, Jordan says to me, he's like, hey, Jack wants to tell you something. Or, you, should, you know, Jack, I need Jack to tell you something. I was like, okay. And he says, uh, well, I just taught Ezra that when you lose a game, you should not get angry. You should just shake hands and say, good game. And it was, it was, <laughs> it was so, so very precious. It was so very precious. But it was also exactly what I want. Exactly what I want. I want other brothers and other kids in the faith who are being discipled by their parents, passing that along, reinforcing what I'm telling my children to, to be kind, to be slow to anger, and have self-control. That needs to be reinforced from peers as well, from generation to generation. Now this leads to one of the more concerning undertones of the generational separation um, and it's, it's really become one of the great heresies of our day, and it's the heresy of radical individualism. The church has gotten it in her head that God only works through individuals isolated from one another. So that the, the only thing that, that really matters is my faith, and is, it's, it's, it's my relationship with God. And, I'm just, and as long as I'm sharing that faith with other individuals... It's fine. You know, it's, it's just me and Jesus and you and Jesus at, when it comes down to it. But the problem with that view of the Christian life is that it's only, just, it's only one small part. A, a fairly, fairly small part. Yes, absolutely, of course, God deals with us as individuals. And yes, of course, we must personally be brought to faith in Christ alone through the gospel. Absolutely. No one, no one can do that for you. So, brother, sister, repent and believe on Jesus. Absolutely. But it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. I want you to go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 7. And we're going to consider how God has dealt with His people in the past. We're going to consider how He's specifically dealing with Abram. Now, this is when... Uh, God first calls Abram to himself. Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, And him who dishonors you, I will curse. 
and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land, passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So it's true. God called Abram as an individual. But Abram's calling was also a generational calling. It had a generational impact. I will make you a great nation. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, it's, it's not just bloodline here. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And to your offspring or descendants is another rendering. I will give this land. You see, God always intends to work from generation to generation. There are not, these are not just promises to, for Abraham, but promises for His next generation and generation and generation to come to ours now. In fact, let's look ahead to Genesis chapter 18, uh, verses 17 through 19. And this is where God continues to deal with with now Abraham. Beginning in verse 17, it says, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what He has promised him. Now you see that? God's people, God's purpose, I should say, is is calling Abraham so that he might command his children and his household. That he might raise them up to follow the Lord, to fear the Lord. And so that might be passed down to the next generation. And this, this hope and this faith that has been given to Abraham might continue and grow. Abraham's calling was a generational calling. Now, the theme is, this theme is presented throughout the Bible. Uh, but let's look at another well-known passage uh, in Exodus 12. I told you guys we're going to be jumping around. And I'm sure you're all familiar with, with Exodus 12. Uh, this is where God is instituting the Passover. On verse 24, it says, You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For He passed over the house of the people of Israel in Egypt 
when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Do you, do you see the point here? One generation shall commend your mighty acts to another. You know, I, as I was reading this passage, specifically in, in Exodus, I couldn't help but shudder when I thought of churches, um, many of them, who intentionally practice the Lord's Supper, um, which is an, uh, now the new Passover, um, practices the Lord's Supper outside of the sight of children. These children are either in children's church or doing some kind of activity, you know, hanging out, you know, not, not paying attention to the Lord's Supper, and that's just not, they're not going to be interested in that. They can't handle that. They don't even have the opportunity to ask, what's, what's the point of that, Dad? What does that mean to you? It's very sad, and it's an unhelpful practice of to separate your children from the church service throughout their adolescence as if they cannot handle it. And how are we to instill this hope? How are we to raise up our children if we are not showing them, if they're not with us, and if they're not doing life, if they're not a part of the church service and learning how to serve one another and seeing their father or their mother a part of a part of the service, a part of the, the church, and working together. Like how, how can we expect them to act like us if we're not teaching them? If we're not teaching them how to act like Christians. But it doesn't stop there. Please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. In this passage, God, well, and throughout the book of Deuteronomy, God repeatedly commands the people of Israel to, and, uh, to, to be intentional with their efforts to pass their faith along to the next generation. Look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Look down at, or next at Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verses 1 and 2. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Keep going down now. <laughs> Verses 6 and 7 of the same chapter. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit at your sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Now, I, I could continue through the entire Old Testament, especially through the book of Deuteronomy. This was a constant commandment of God that we should that we should be abundantly concerned with the generations before and especially after our own. 
But, I mean, the Bible doesn't even stop there. There are, I'm not going to do this to you, but there, there are so many examples throughout the Bible of, of generations falling away because of a lack of follow-through from the previous generation. I mean, I, I can even attest in my own life where I've, I've been a part of different churches and uh, I've seen the youth who are, you know, they're, it's programming kind of stuff going on, and, you know, they're not really a part of the church, and they've sort of grown up in a Christian home, but there's not been really any um, intentional discipleship. Um, but they, you know, they get sent to youth group. That's the, sort of the extent of it. But as soon as they go to college or they move out and get a job, they forsake their Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And how could we expect them to do any different? Amen. How could we expect them to live like Christians if they have no idea what it is to live like a Christian? Now, I want to be clear. Um, I'm not saying, so the overreaction, I'm not saying that if you raise your kids in church and you give them a Christian worldview and do all the right things by God's grace, they will somehow be guaranteed to be a Christian. Only God can guarantee that. I'm not in the business of making promises I can't keep. But I am saying that it, it most certainly can't hurt to trust and obey the promises of the Lord your God and obey His commandments and do what He says and He will do what seems good to Him. And that's all that we can do. Also, I want to qualify another thing. Please don't hear me saying, and I, I mentioned this earlier, that God is only concerned with families and the, their connections, bloodlines, and, and such. We are not just called to raise up generations with our own family. No, that's, that's not how God intended it either. You certainly notice a theme in the Old Testament of commands from family to family, father uh, to son. But in the New Testament, the call for the generational dominion is even broader than family lines. You see, our concern isn't just for our family and children, but it's also for spiritual sons and spiritual daughters and spiritual fathers and, and, and so on. We are, we are in this together as brothers and sisters, not by blood, but by the blood of Christ. Amen. My point is that God has called us to have this multi-generational view. We, it's clear in, this, in Scripture and we, we, should, we should fight the feeling to isolate and to cut off ourselves and uh, one group or another. And we'll learn more about how that, how that happens next week. Um, but every, every generation should be present within the church. We should, seek, we, should, we should be going out to the old folks' home. There's a, there's a more politically correct term than that. Um, but we should be going to the to, to the to rest homes and interacting with those brothers and sisters in the faith. We should be caring for the poor and the downtrodden, however old they are, and whatever generation X or Z they're a part of. It doesn't matter. We we need to be active, and the reason we need to be active is because we have this hope. It should be our regular practice within our community. Uh, to be passing the baton of faith and unfinished work to the next generation. Now, uh, as I come to a close, 
I just want to give a few very high-level points of application. First, learn to think in terms that are, that are bigger than yourself and bigger than the, the present moment. Don't be consumed with your circumstances. Learn to plan for long-term gains, both physical and spiritual. Don't just sit in a closet and read the Bible. That can be helpful at times, but it's not helpful all the time. Pour into your children. Pour into your, your brother's children. And pour, pour into all the children. <laughs> Seek out everyone. Teach them how to be healthy to the glory of God. Teach them uh, a trade. You know, if you, if you know how to weld and somebody's interested, teach them how. Help start a business. Pass that business along to your children. Whatever you do, just, just do it intentionally. The second thing is be intentional. Another intentional point. To seek out brothers and sisters of other generations. And I mentioned this earlier, but don't be afraid to go and talk to someone who's vastly older than you or vastly younger than you. You should, you should seek to know them. You should seek to disciple them or be discipled by them. Don't be confined to your comfort zone. And the last point, uh, and J- uh, Jordan mentioned this in his prayer, um, but know what your individual purpose is. And that can change. I'm not saying that once you decide, you can't change it. Um, but... There's, a, there's an article, I think it would it'd be very fruitful, fruitful for all of you to, to look it up. It's, it's by Bojanar Marinoff, and it's called The Individual Purpose in the Kingdom of God. And it's, it's very, very good. I'm going to leave that little teaser. It's just very good. <laughs> but find your passion in the Kingdom of God. It all belongs to Him. All of it. There is nothing... That's, that there's no job out there that's outside of, well, I won't say that. There, <laughs> there's no righteous jobs that are out there uh, that are good uh, inherently, uh, that cannot glorify God. Brothers and sisters, let's, let's join together to seek to be faithful to our calling to Christ and to put Psalm, 4, Psalm 145 verse 4 into practice. That one generation shall commend the work of God to another and shall declare His mighty acts.